Hey Elevation! My name is Melissa Burke and I'm part of our pastoral team here at Elevation. And over the next few weeks, as you may know, we are taking some time to, um, to talk about the idea of neighboring and specifically about what we have come to know as our neighbors groups. And so we wanted to take a little bit of time here just to preface this series with an explanation around the history of neighbors groups here at Elevation um, and to dig in a little bit to what our hopes were originally for these groups and where we find ourselves now. So I'm just going to take a couple minutes to do that now. So in the summer of 2019, we started to dream about uh, the formation of some sort of network of small groups that would allow for people in our community to find a place and belonging and also for care to happen more organically in a smaller group. And so what we landed on was this neighborhood-based network of groups. Everyone who called Elevation um, home was assigned to a group based on the community that they lived in. So this was regardless of a person's stage of life, their interests, or any other factors, um, just by nature of being a part of the Elevation community um, and having an address. Everyone was assigned to a group based on that. And when we started these groups, these were some of the hopes that we had at that time. We hoped that people would deepen a sense of place and belonging within the larger community. We hoped that individuals would be able to pay closer attention to the needs of a smaller contingent in our community and then respond in kind. So a little bit of background there. Um, at that time, we had a pastoral care team made up of about 10 individuals and these people would meet together once a month. Our team would meet and pray for our community. We would discuss any needs that we were aware of um, and just check in with people throughout those months in between. Um, but what we were finding was that it was actually quite a challenge to have a group of 10 people um, being aware of what's going on in everybody's lives. And so we felt that if we were able to have one pastoral care team rep uh, assigned to each of these groups, that that person would be able to become a little bit more aware of what's happening in each, in each other's lives. And then that organic care could happen actually in the group as well. Uh, we also hoped that we would have a chance to build more relationships outside of peer and stage of life groups. It is natural that we tend to um, be drawn towards those who we can relate with, whether that is stage of life or interests, and that's not a bad thing, but it also means that we miss out on a lot of what the church is meant to be because we miss out on some of that diversity, learning from one another, learning from those in other stages of life, and coming alongside and being mentors to those who maybe are walking paths that we have already walked. And so uh, we wanted to make sure that we could develop a network that would allow for that to happen. Uh, we also hoped that this would allow newcomers to be integrated in a more timely and intentionally organic way into the community. We hoped that we would be able to create new opportunities for active and generous involvement in our local communities. So it was our hope that these neighbors groups would uh, become aware of the needs in the community. Many of this, we know that, that uh, this was happening in many um, of our homes and neighborhoods already, but we hoped that our neighbors groups together would be able to also respond to the needs within their own neighborhoods. And we hoped that we would stir up more opportunities for thoughtful spiritual engagement with one another. So the framework included at that time a potluck meal once every two months together. And then on the opposite month, the group would find some kind of creative way to be together. 
So the idea was um, at least once a month, some sort of gathering happening within those groups. And our hope with this was that these neighborhood groups would be collaborative in nature. So with everyone having an opportunity to speak into how the group would form and develop. We had a point person for each group who was responsible for uh, communicating with the group, for facilitating the gatherings, making sure that everybody knew what was happening. And then we also, like I mentioned, had a, a pastoral care team member assigned to each of the groups as well. One of the statements that we made in this introduction of neighbors groups in the fall of 2019 was, of course, what happens in between those monthly connects is really the heart of neighbors. So each group will be encouraged to find meaningful ways to stay in touch with each other on an ongoing basis. We had no idea at the time just how much these groups would become the heart of our community connection just a few months later. So we launched these groups in October of 2019. We had just a few months of regular gatherings uh, leading into the, the early part of 2020. And then of course, as we all know, in March of 2020, we made a significant pivot. What we have, some of us have come to call the pandemic pivot. So we pivoted to weekly discussion calls almost immediately. Uh, it, it was a beautiful thing. We have, uh, many people have mentioned the fact of just what a gift it was that we had the structure in place just in time to kind of catch us in um, as we fell into this pivot. So right away, we had the opportunity to divide up into our groups and that was where we shifted our discussion time to on Sunday mornings. So that became a weekly call for many people, um, they expressed how much these calls meant to them during that time. It was a way of staying connected with each other, of walking that um, really unknown pathway together through those early months of COVID. Um, and we, what we heard was that many people were really valuing that time together, that consistent time of getting to know one another, of sharing life together, of being able to pray for one another and respond to each other's needs. And so what was not meant to be a weekly connect quickly became a weekly connect. And uh, we also know that this meant that point people and those who were involved in leadership of those groups took on a much more significant role than what they had initially signed up for. And again, we are so grateful for all of you point people who, who carried us through that season. Thank you again. Um, some of the things that happened during those um, early months and even into that full year of the of the pandemic were um, this ongoing chat through the week, checking in with one another, providing meals, welcoming babies, walking through losses. Um, and the other thing that happened during that time was that new people found Elevation um, online and they were able to become integrated into the community through these neighbors groups which is you know, one of our hopes for that group and for, for neighbors groups initially. And it was a beautiful thing to see that actually happening even during this online season. Um, service projects happened within our neighbors groups. We, uh, we shared in communion over Zoom several times together as groups. And we also wanna acknowledge that, that it was a long uh, and hard season and that for many in our community, these online connections um, were not possible for whatever reason, stage of life, or even just that connection within the group. Um, there were some groups where that worked really well and other groups where it, it didn't. And that is reality. And we just wanna acknowledge that, that this positive, meaningful experience was not everyone's experience. And so here we are, the fall of 2022. 
and we are asking lots of questions. We are reimagining many things about who we are and where we're going, including neighbors groups. And we are also recognizing that many of the hopes that we had for neighbors groups way back in the fall of 2019 remain the same. And there are many of those hopes that we haven't even really been able to give the energy towards or um, that we haven't explored together as a community yet. And there's also so much room for us to grow and expand this vision and change this vision of what Neighbors Groups is as well. And so we want to set out to discern together about what Neighbors Groups could become. We want to start by taking some time over these next few weeks to explore some of the whys around this approach. We want to explore the theological and ecclesial whys. Ecclesial just means to um, what it means to be the church. In what ways do Neighbors Groups give us an opportunity to grow in our understanding and expression of what it means to be the church? We want to explore the whys around recognizing that there are spiritual practices that can grow out of these spaces more organically. Practices like hospitality, caring for each other, caring for those around us, and walking with one another more closely. And we want to explore the whys around proximity and place and this concept of neighborhood-based groups. Does proximity matter? Uh, why did we choose a geographical approach to create these groups? Um, does it matter? And if so, in what ways? So we want to dive into these questions and we invite you to come and be a part of this conversation. And we're just so grateful that, um, that you're here. So on Sunday, October 9th, we began uh, a new series in October called Into the Neighborhood, where we're looking at a possible ecclesiology, a possible way of being the church that flips it around and places a real focus on neighbors groups as, as central. Uh, and so we wanted to present this uh, as one possible way forward, not that it's already decided, but um, for uh, conversation and for food for thought and for consideration. Uh, but on that particular Sunday, our our audio recording failed. Um, we had some technical difficulties. We wanted to re-record it and make it accessible for those who missed it or those who maybe wanted to digest it a bit further. So uh, for the first 25 years of my life, the idea of neighborhood was unimportant or maybe less important. I certainly didn't notice the role that neighborhood or place played in my life. Uh, sure, it would be nice to live in an affordable neighborhood or, or one with a low level of crime or one with nice amenities, but these were all tertiary or maybe uh, secondary to less, um, to more pressing matters in life. And so my own journey over these last 13 years has been a recognition, a realization of just how important place and neighborhood actually are and some of the challenges that we experience as individuals and as a church. Uh, the first is that rootedness is this incredibly vital and yet nearly impossible value when we live in a hypermobile society that often lives above place. What I mean by above place is that we are not limited by our place. We can drive anywhere we want. Uh, we can order something from anywhere in the world and have it delivered to us. We can eat food that is not in season in our climate. We transcend place more easily than any other previous civilization before us. But rootedness, though, requires a willingness to lay down roots, to stay even when it's difficult, to limit ourselves to a particular place, to commit even when it's hard, to navigate change and conflict, because when we live in close proximity, in close proximity with people, 
uh, we will experience conflict. We will experience uh, that the kind of rub when we disagree. Um, and so this means that rootedness requires of us uh, to love people and to be loved by people who don't always think or agree with us. The second thing is what author and missiologist Stuart Murray Williams, he's a UK uh, author, he once said that, uh, and this is kind of a generalization, uh, he said that those who live in poverty tend to live in and depend on neighborhoods, while those who live in affluence tend to live in and depend on networks. Neighborhoods, networks. We may consider the role of city infrastructure in this, that where those who live in a relative poverty uh, need to live in the core, in urban dense environments where transit supports exist, where the city is walkable, where there are amenities like parks and schools and grocery stores all nearby, uh, while those who live in affluence tend to gravitate towards more uh, safety. You know, when you have young kids, you maybe move out of an urban dense environment into maybe more of a suburb or a suburban community because uh, there's relative safety there. Um, or for other reasons, we may be drawn to the, the pace of life in suburban communities. Uh, but in suburban communities, everything is more or less accessible by driving. And this leads us to uh, organizing our life around networks. Uh, and these networks tend to be based on affinity. We maybe know each other and we have networks of, of community because our kids are in soccer together, uh, as an example. While neighborhood community is organized by geography, uh, not by affinity. The third thing is that the church has slowly moved from neighborhood presence to an emphasis on networking. Uh, we would see the loss of the idea of parish uh, within the church. Uh, to a, the rise of different kinds of church expressions, uh, the rise of mobility, and for a decade or so, the church growth movement led to all kinds of homogeneous church expressions and demographic-focused churches. And so consider that people now can drive across the city or across the region to find the church that best fits their needs, and that we've often organized ourselves in small groups of affinity or age group. So we've moved away from neighborhood and geography and relocated our whole emphasis around affinity and age group. The church, the fourth thing is that the church has experienced a resurgence of neighborhood focus over the last two decades, but for the most part, it's been done poorly. We've got the bait and switch model, which is one of two, and then we have uh, another model, which I'll speak to in, in a second. The bait and switch model is that we host a barbecue or a block party, and while we've got your attention, while we've, while we've invited you into our space, let us now tell you about our programs and ministries and, and get you plugged in. And, uh, and that's one sort of a model that the church has used, and it's often the motivation, The there's always a, a hidden motivation that people feel is disingenuous, and it doesn't leave people feeling very good about um, the event they attended, uh, an ulterior motive surfaces. The second thing is the uh, strategic demographic church plant. Someone at a higher denominational level does some census data or some data analysis and determines that this particular neighborhood needs a church. Uh, and so they parachute in, they send somebody in uh, to the neighborhood, they offer a needs assessment to the neighborhood, you know, hey, you're broken, you need Jesus. And they don't actually know the people in the neighborhood or, or are embodied there. Uh, and so it's, it's a fractured model as well. It feels wrong as well. 
The fifth observation here about place and neighborhood is that the church is a gathered model. It tends to be a Sunday-centric model. We've built this thing upon a foundation of a religious culture. Um, but this religious culture has been in decline for a while now. And we often find that new church growth in churches comes uh, through people leaving one church and coming to another, not through people who didn't know Jesus finding Jesus. But we still operate based on the idea that if we build it, the church, its programs, our Sunday service, that people will come, but guess what? They aren't, and they won't, and I think deep down inside, we actually know this. So that's kind of bleak. Um, I've been kind of bleak lately, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, but what I'm hoping to do is cast uh, the idea that there is a better way. There's got to be a better way. And so what we're proposing is, what if neighbors groups and a, a neighborhood geographic approach is actually the better way forward? So this week, uh, the, the 16th and then the 30th, we'll be sitting with this conversation, asking questions, wrestling with some of these ideas, pondering if our focus needs to shift from Sunday mornings as the center of who we are to rooting our collective identity as a church in neighbors groups. And I want to give a shout out to uh, Melissa Burke and Devin Wagler for collaborating and co-conspiring on some of the themes of this uh, three-week conversation. So, the first question we, we, we should ask is, well, who is my neighbor? And, uh, and we encounter these words um, in a story in Luke 10. But before we get there, all throughout the chapter of Luke 10, Jesus is showing his disciples the importance of showing up, of being present to people. Uh, first in the story of the sending out of the 72, out into various places. Uh, it's a spreading out, go in twos, out to all these different municipalities and localities. Bring nothing. Bring nothing but yourselves, stay if they'll have you, eat with these people, uh, heal the sick that are there. Not in any maybe miraculous way, but in often in ordinary mundane ways, be a people of hospitality and care, extend peace to them. And then the story tells us that they come back, they return, they give thanks, they reflect on what they'd seen and heard and were witness to. And this little experience of simply being with people was revolutionizing their approach. Uh, Jesus says to them, hey, blessed are the eyes that see the things that you saw. Uh, for I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see these things, uh, but didn't see them, to hear these things, but didn't hear them. And then there's this interaction a little later on in the chapter in Luke 10 uh, between Jesus and a legal expert. And the legal expert asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus flips the question back on him by saying, hey, well, what is written? How do you read it? And the legal expert answers well and wisely. He pulls from Deuteronomy 6, which is, which is the Shema, this famous verse, uh, famous idea from uh, Deuteronomy that the Israelites would have, would have been, it would have been foundational for them, a hinge verse. Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And from Leviticus 19, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus commends this answer. He tells the, the, the legal expert, you've answered well. Uh, but then the lawyer, the legal expert, pushes the conversation forward. He's seeking to justify himself. He says, well, who is my neighbor? And maybe there's maybe he's seeking for a loophole here. Maybe he's looking for some clarity. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting com uh, question for Jesus, and it's an interesting question for us as well. Uh, as we live lives that are so easily above place and very much rooted in a kind of independence, what role do these people who live near us even play? Do we need them? Do we see them? Do we even know their names? Who is my neighbor? Jesus responds by telling the story, the story of the Good Samaritan. He says this, 
Jesus took up the question, and he said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, they beat him, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which is like two days worth of wages, and he gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The legal expert responds, the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus tells him, well, go and do the same. So this is quite likely a, f a familiar story. The language of good Samaritans has been carried forward into our culture. And we even have a good Samaritan act that gives us an out uh, for helping people in need. But it also protects us legally if you do decide to offer first aid. Uh, and like something goes wrong, you're protected by the good Samaritan act because you offered uh, with good intent. The story is a kind of a parable. Uh, it's pretty straightforward at first. A man finds himself in trouble. He's beat up. He's stripped down. He's left for dead. The priest and the Levite, two prominent religious figures, avoid him, passing over to the other side of the road. And for a variety of reasons, they do this. Maybe they justified not going near him. Uh, religious rules about blood and ritual purity, and they didn't want to defile themselves. And so they give themselves a, a loophole out for helping him. And then, of course, we have the Samaritan, the one who is often ridiculed by these other two religious characters, becomes the hero of the story as he acts with compassion, as he moves toward this person in need. Then Jesus asks the hanging question, who was a neighbor? And this legal expert who was maybe seeking to justify himself or perhaps looks for a loophole is confronted with something very concrete. To be a neighbor is to show mercy and to act with compassion when you encounter somebody in need. There's a book called The Art of Neighboring, and uh, it's a kind of a primer on the importance of getting back to being a neighbor and being present in your neighborhood. And this book suggests that the idea of neighboring isn't just wrapped up in mercy and compassion, but also the use of the language of neighbor should suggest to us something about geography and proximity. And for the ancient world, this would be a no-brainer. Uh, most of Jesus' ministry is focused in, in neighborhoods, in villages, in towns. The whole of their society was wrapped up in a hyper-local understanding. I think about my own context. You know, I live uh, a couple hours away on a bit of a hobby farm in the middle of nowhere. And you might think, well, who's this guy who doesn't live in a neighborhood talking about neighbors and neighboring? And, and I would say, you know, well, my own experiences in Windsor, which were very much hyper-local and, and neighborhood-focused, um, have taught me a lot. But also, intrinsic to rural communities is this idea of neighboring. We actually need each other. You don't have to teach this because it's very much part of the DNA and makeup of uh, living in a community like this. Uh, everyone knows everyone around. Everyone knows uh, their names, the names of their houses, uh, who lived there before. Um, and if you need something like a cup of sugar, you can't just drive over to a grocery store uh, because a grocery store is actually quite far away. You go to your neighbor 
Uh, and so there's within the fabric of rural communities, actually, is actually this value of neighboring that's already there. Uh, but for us who live in maybe urban settings, uh, maybe it's actually something that we've lost. We've lost the plot and neighbor has come to mean anyone and no one. Uh, and so in their book, uh, Jay and Dan uh, suggest that the problem, however, is that when we aim for everything, we hit nothing. So when we insist we're neighbors with everybody, often we end up being neighbors with nobody. That's our human nature. We become like the lawyer looking for a loophole. And so I wonder, what if we took seriously the idea that our neighbors are both the people we encounter who need mercy and compassion and the physical, literal neighbors we live nearby? Uh, what if those things overlapped, kind of like a Venn diagram, and that neighboring is precisely the interse intersecting point, uh, the, the people who are our physical, literal neighbors who are in need of mercy and compassion. And if our impulse is to, is to cross away from the other side of the road, to not get involved in people's problems, the story of the Good Samaritan shows us actually that the good neighbor steps in, enters into their story. Um, when we were living in, uh, in downtown Windsor, as part of the downtown Windsor community collaborative, the DWCC, we lived in a parish. It was very much, um, by design, all of us as a community lived within a four square, uh, kilometer radius. Uh, and part of what we were trying to do was, was live, work, play, and pray within the parish. Uh, to do as much life as possible within these geographical boundaries. And we would see and interact with the same kinds of people over and over and over and over again. We would actually uh, tangibly learn to love uh, and walk alongside our neighbors. And one of the things we do is we play this game with, uh, I play this game with my kids where, you know, we, we'd be walking to the local park and on our way home, we'd say, okay, that street, uh, who do we know on that street? And they'd start spouting off, you know, oh, we know this person, oh, we know that person, and we know this person and their dog, the dog's name is this. And, and, uh, and what I, you know, over the course of four and a half, five years of living in downtown Windsor, uh, we as a family knew many, many, many of our neighbors. And this was a reminder, uh, first of all, of who our neighbors are, who is my neighbor, but also uh, what it means to be rooted in place. One of the challenges we experience when it comes to neighboring, especially when we talk about neighbors groups, is that beneath this idea of neighboring is a set of cultural social values. Uh, we tend to live our lives on, on the poles here, um, either in the context of uh, dependence or independence. And, and dependence, when it's, when it's unhealthy, uh, turns to kind of a kind of codependence. I'd like to suggest that somewhere in the middle is this biblical idea of interdependence. So we think about uh, the body metaphor. Uh, we're all members of one body. Each of us has a role to play. There's interdependent language here. When we consider an idea like hospitality, we might see that there are uh, two ditches uh, to this road. First, if we are unwilling or unable to offer hospitality to others, that's one ditch where we maybe lack the means or the motivation to help people. The other ditch is if we are unwilling or unable to receive the hospitality of others. Maybe because we, we won't let our guard down or won't let people um, know how they can help us or show our, our own weakness or our own vulnerability. Maybe we have too much pride or too much independence to let others help us. 
And so part of the movement uh, that we, we need is actually to move from these, uh, these two ditches toward interdependence. If we move from independence to interdependence, it's a shift from uh, self-centered to other-centered. Uh, on the flip side, when we're moving from dependence to interdependence, it is to validate and recognize my own gifts, my own value, my own contributions to community. Uh, church unfortunately, often lands in this category. We become dependent on church. Church becomes a spectacle on the stage. We tend to minimize our own contributions or gifts or value. We become dependent on the sage, on, on the stage to tell us what to think, how to act, what to believe. Uh, if we consider the idea of care, the shift here is from being self-sufficient to letting down our guard and allowing others to help us, which is a kind of vulnerable thing and a place to be. On the other side, uh, maybe this one is a bit easier for us. Uh, we, we also need to be able to offer care to others. And maybe we do this with more, uh, with greater ease and greater willingness to care for others uh, because it requires something different from us. Another idea here that I think uh, as we kind of toy out this idea of interdependence is this image of um, of the hexagon. And we get this from bees. And bees to me are one of the most inspiring uh, communities. I just love uh, what a colony of bees uh, says and some of the the social values that you would see in in a colony of bees. There's this beautiful interconnectedness. Um, that you see. And so when a colony of bees is working on their hive, they build these honeycomb cells against each other that actually the, the cell walls, need, no single honeycomb cell can stand on its own. They're all built against each other as a kind of interconnected and interdependent structure. And, and if, I was, if I was to push this a little further and kind of play with it a bit, this image, what if we factored people into this? What if we said uh, this image of, of interconnectedness, of, of a mosaic of honeycomb um, hexagons, what if I'm called and invited into care for the six people around me? And those same six people around me are invited into and called to care for me. Uh, wouldn't that be kind of a beautiful picture of, of community and care and interconnected and interdependent uh, love for one another? It's a beautiful picture to me anyway, uh, even if it's maybe more abstract and, and, uh, and hopeful than it is realistic. Let's push a little deeper. There's another idea here that I'd love to get to, and that is um, this book by Paul Bourne, who is um, a Kitchener-Waterloo native uh, who worked for the Tamarack. He was the former president of the Tamarack Institute located in Kitchener-Waterloo. And he wrote a book back in 2016 called Deepening Community, which I think actually is more pertinent now than it was even then, because it talks about finding community in the midst of chaotic times. So the main emphasis of, of his book is about, um, is about moving toward deeper and more meaningful community expressions over and against shallow and fear-based community expressions. Shallow community often comes at a low cost and requires very little from us, but it also offers us very little. And fear-based community is often um, more common in our polarized landscape. It's based on language of, it's rooted in the language of us and them. So in this, uh, in this first slide, Paul gets us to consider uh, the, the, the frequency of our relationships. How often we see each other 
uh, is, is part of this whole shallow, fear-based, deep idea. In shallow community, we're friends who see each other infrequently. We might not even consider ourselves friends. We might be more acquaintances or sometimes even strangers, uh, familiar at best. In deep communities, we are people who spend repeated, frequent time together. There's a frequency of life that I think is, is more intensive and more, uh, more than just once a week on a Sunday morning. Uh, maybe you've heard it said uh, before of people that are just looking for community as they move from place to place. And I've been, I've been guilty of saying that. Hey, we're just, I'm just looking for a community. I'm looking for a place um, that feels like community. But someone wiser than me once said, hey, you want me to tell you, or you, you tell me you want community. Um, here's how you're going to find it. Stay here for 10 years and you'll find community. That something about frequency and rootedness matters when it comes to deepening our community. There's more. He goes on, and he, when he's talking about the fabric of community care, Paul Bourne says this. He says, the notion of a shallow community is that we, you need to take care of yourself. You need to rely on yourself to t for, for care because you can't really rely on other people. But a deep community, uh, the what how this changes is that you begin to let your guard down. You'd be willing to be vulnerable. You let others take care of you and you'll find family-like community that takes care of you. But it's not easy. It takes a willingness to show others your wounds and your weakness. The next one talks about moving from care to connection and belonging, where a shallow community reflects loneliness a deep community shows that repeated acts of mutual care for one another are how we form meaningful connection and a deeper sense of belonging. Finally, this last slide speaks to the cost. For a shallow community, there is actually very little cost or no cost. There's little requirement for us, but a deeper community comes at a cost to us because it won't always be easy to care for one another, to embrace conflict in, in relationship, to stay when it's tough. It's going to come at a bit more of a price for us, but we're going to find so much more uh, meaning and fulfillment in deep community. The last thing I want to pull forward uh, is this idea of scale and belonging. I think scale is really important. Uh, if we consider the role of neighbors groups in the future of elevation, uh, in his book, The Search to Belong, Joseph Meyer speaks of four relational spaces that contribute to our sense of belonging, public, social, personal, and private. Public spaces are like being lost in a crowd. You might know some people, but you might not know everyone. Social spaces are like summer barbecues where you maybe know a lot of people, but you may not know them super well. Um, personal spaces are like dinner with good friends where you can talk honestly about your life and chances are you're going to know everybody there. And private spaces tend to be with one or two people where you share the personal and the cry of your life. And, and so you can see from public to private, there's a spectrum. There's movement from low intimacy and low trust to high intimacy and high trust. We might plot our gatherings uh, as a church on the spectrum here. And I'd suggest that our Sunday gathering uh, is somewhere between a public and a social space. And perhaps our neighbors groups are a bit more intimate and a bit more with a bit more trust. And they're somewhere between a social and a personal space. 
And in Windsor, in our community, we would often have woven in trios or groups of three who were more intentional about discipleship. And they would be more between a personal and a private space. Joseph Myers writes, In our time, people have a hunger for a significant median space. This may arise from the recent history of minimizing the importance of these relationships. Median spaces are the spaces that include our social and personal connections. There's a longing here, especially, I would say, uh, in this sort of COVID, post-COVID reality, where we would have lost some of these more personal spaces. There's a longing for uh, this median space that bridges between a social and a personal space. Uh, all of these spaces of belonging are needed. Each is vital in our moving from shallow community to deeper community. And I wonder if, if building out and investing in neighbors groups will help us in an effort uh, to cultivate that kind of deep community we're looking for together. Next week, we're going to build on some of these ideas. But as we wrap up, here's a quote from Paul Bourne. He says, reciprocity and trust have a wonderful effect. Helping or reaching out to help one another becomes as natural as breathing. We take care of one another, not only because it is the right thing to do, and not only because people will help us if we help them, but primarily because the bond of love that has grown between us moves us to do so. Mutual acts of caring that happen often forge a sense of belonging. When we feel we belong, we feel safe and fulfilled. When we feel safe and fulfilled, we can dare to develop hope and common purpose. We have the strength to overcome together almost any challenge that comes our way. I don't know about you, but that seems like the kind of community I'd want to be a part of, where we have reciprocity and trust that build together in a frequency of relationships and care for one another that leads to a sense of safety and fulfillment. And from that, we dare to hope together and find common purpose and we can overcome uh, anything that comes our way. So questions for you to think about um, are, you know, who is, who is my neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Both the people geographically closest to you and the people that you care for and are cared for by. What if the community that we're longing for is actually uh, closer and more accessible than we know? What if we're on the cusp of that already and we've been moving toward it already? And then the last question is, what small shifts might we take to move from shallow and fear-based communities into communities of depth and health and hope?